Locked On Dolphins, hosted by Travis Wingfield. Your daily podcast on the Miami Dolphins, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm in town to play the Dolphins, you dumbass. What's up, Dolphins, and welcome into the Tuesday, March the 26th edition of the Locked On Dolphins podcast. I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and as always, I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, we welcome in a guest that hasn't been on in far, far too long. Ian Wharton joins us to talk about his quarterback prospect charting project, his thoughts on Greer, Flores, and the entire rebuild operation. Plus, I'd be remiss if we didn't get Ian out of here without talking about the defensive backs, all of that and a lot more. But first, before any of it, I kindly invite all of you to please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Tuned In, Google Play, or the new Himalaya Podcast app. Give me a follow on Twitter at NFL. Follow the show at Locked On Fins. Check out LockedOnDolphins.com, the number one blog in the entire Locked On Network, and the other Locked On Sports family of podcasts like the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast and the Draft Dudes podcast for all the NFL draft coverage leading up to April's draft in 2019. We have a lot to get to on this episode with Ian Wharton. Let's go ahead and jump right in. That's another Miami Dolphins. And I've got the interview with Ian pre-recorded. Let's just go ahead and roll that tape. And joining the podcast now is a senior analyst at Optimum Scouting. You can find his NFL and college work on Bleacher Report. He is at NFL Film Study on Twitter. And welcome back into the show, Ian. It's actually been since August 28th of last year we last talked. Welcome in, Ian Wharton. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's been way too long, so I'm happy to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, it has been way too long, and I'm curious, what have you been up to since then? I know you've changed a couple of uh, positions there with Optimum Scouting, and I don't know, if are you still at fan-sided? Uh, no, so I'm back with Bleacher Report on the NFL side. So I did college football um, throughout the season with, uh, with Bleacher Report. I'm back on NFL with them. So uh, yeah, man, just take them work wherever I can get it. Well, that sounds good. I think we intended on doing an in-season podcast, but the schedule with Locked On, it gets, so, it gets so strict to you know a daily type of routine that I sometimes have a hard time getting guests on during the season. But I'm glad to have you on now. And what better time to have you on now because you do these quarterback charts and you have what six, seven years worth of them. And it's fantastic stuff. He goes through and charts every throw of the top level quarterbacks coming out in the draft. And let's just go ahead and start there. Ian, let's go ahead and get your general thoughts on this class. Who's the best. Where do you think Murray and Haskins should go? Where do you think they, they will go? Just give me your general top level quarterback thoughts on this year's class. Yeah. So it's, it's a really interesting class because I think we can look at the top two guys and really discern them from the rest. You know, I think we can look at Dwayne Haskins, we can look at Kyler Murray, and we can say, for certain, these two guys are the top two guys. Uh, Not only just because of their accuracy to every level, but really what I look at for these guys, because I have about 65 quarterbacks, you know, over that seven years or so, um, it's the situational play. How do these guys do under pressure? How do these guys do on third and fourth down? How do they do in the red zone? Um, how many interceptable passes are they trying to throw? And, and I'm pretty loose with that stuff, right? So, like, I'm not looking at, like, oh, if the cornerback undercut that throw, that could have been an interception. No. Did it hit him in the hands, right? Did he just drop the ball? So I'm not too, too uh, you know, too creative with that stuff. I'm really looking at, like, what happened here. Um, so, I mean, statistically, I think it's, a, it's an interesting class that has two guys at the top, and then it has really this web of day three guys 
Um, there's a couple guys in between there, like Drew Locke, I would say, probably deserves a shot on day two. Um, and then I think the rest are probably flyer type of guys, high-end backups, maybe spot starters, but no one that you're really going to want to commit to, I think, for you know the next 10 years. Maybe they'll come in and defy expectations, but you know their profiles, and, and I think the film generally matches up pretty well. I, I, usually you're not going to see numbers that are insane, um, and then you look at the film and it's like, oh, that guy just stunk. Uh, so it, it's an interesting class. In total, um, I looked at 12 guys, so a little bit of a deeper pool this year. Uh, even though it is a bit of a mediocre class. And so that's what we're expecting to get drafted. Uh, maybe one or two more will get in there. So I think Haskins and Murray are the two guys that you'd say are first-round talents for sure. Haskins actually probably has the strongest profile of anybody across the board. He was uh, in the top tier for uh, accuracy to all levels, all situational play. Uh, I think he is really a fantastic guy. I think he's a very high-floor type of player. Kyler Murray did really well across the board, not quite as well as Haskins. Uh, more comparable to like a Josh Rosen, where you can see a couple of weaknesses, uh, but still you could say a first round. He's a first year starter, so I mean, there's gonna even if he's a three year starter, this is a good profile, but a first year starter for sure. Uh, his play against pressure, I think, would be the biggest hesitancy, um, as well as his physical capabilities and his, his stature. So, and that's going to be subjective to, to the individual. But overall, I would definitely start this class off with those two. Yeah, and Dwayne Haskins, I've been doing a lot of work on him lately, and I got accused on Twitter of maybe being a little bit less on him because of my fandom for Kyler Murray, and I gotta say, that's that's not at all what I'm going for, because I'm just like you guys as far as the fans go. I'm a fan too. I want to see this team get a quarterback that can finally put an end to the post-Marino woes at the position, and you mentioned Drew Locke, Ian, and I want to go back to him and talk about him and a couple other quarterbacks here real quick before we go to our first break, and you mentioned Drew Locke, and you said that there's a chance for him to slide into that first round, maybe even up into that top 15 range, because it happens every year. And I'm with you in terms of having that pause, thinking maybe he shouldn't be in that position. But what is it about his game that prevents him from being a top 10 level quarterback? Because the physical traits are all there in terms of the arm, the different arm angles he tries to throw from, a little bit of mobility in his game. What is preventing him from being a top 10 level quarterback and a guy the Dolphins should target with the 13th pick? Yeah, I think this is a lot going to be a lot of his mental makeup. And so he actually charted really well against pressure, which is shocking. Like he's like one of the best in my study in against pressure. But this is where the context comes in. And as, as we've seen RPOs become so uh, uh, so prevalent, especially in that system, they're scheming pressure and they're scheming pressure so that he can have easier passing windows and easier reads. So technically, although it counts as a pressure, it's a predetermined read. The ball's coming out quickly. Anyway, it's, it's really a false pressure. And he really benefited from that. Uh, not only just in terms of his accuracy and charting, but just in terms of production too. Uh, it makes the games easier for him. So looking at his profile real quick, uh, his accuracy from zero to 10 yards, bottom quartile. It's bad. <laughs> like, and, it, and it's funny. It actually gets better as he throws further downfield. That's crazy. So 11 to 19 yards, he's about average. Uh, and then deep, 20-plus yards, he's actually well above average. So he's really good. So what that tells me is that a lot of this is scheme. A lot of this is physical skill set. Uh, when he actually has to make anticipation throws, leverage reads, understanding what the defense is doing before the snap, he's really struggling. But when he can just sit back there or roll out and throw deep, um, you know, he definitely has the arm for it. There's no doubt about it. He's probably the prettiest deep ball thrower in the class. Um, that's definitely a skill set that you can build around. Uh, but for me, this is this is a multi-year project. This is something where you have to understand if that short game doesn't improve, 
And, you know, if it does improve, what level are you crippling the offense to get it there? It's almost like a Matt Stafford thing. Um, How much do you have to pull back for it to work? So uh, analytically, I don't think he's more than a day two guy. Uh, I think you're right, though. I think he's actually going to go pretty high. And that's the thing about Drew Locke's game to me, because I, for me, you'd mentioned that drop from the top two guys down to the third or the second tier guys. And for me, that's the same. But then I see a big drop after Drew Locke too, just because of those physical traits and can you put it all together? But when it comes to the Dolphins and their position right now, they're not in a position where they have to rush and hurry up and find that quarterback. So why go in that direction? So we'll talk about this quarterback and some other quarterbacks more on the next side of the podcast here with Ian Wharton. He is at NFL Film Study on the Locked On Dolphins podcast at Wingfield NFL at Locked On Fins. Okay, picking things back up here, talking about the quarterbacks beyond Kyler Murray and Dwayne Haskins, because I think that most Dolphins fans are resigned to the fact that it ain't going to happen. So we're talking about Drew Locke, and then there's two more quarterbacks, Ian, that I think I'm much lower on than the average person, and they are Daniel Jones and Will Greer. And a big reason for that is because I watch both these guys try to load up and chuck the ball down the field, and it takes everything they have. And while Will Greer, to me, is a total gamer and a guy that has that temperament you want, and Daniel Jones is not, I think that the thing I have issue with in both of them the most is the fact that they're not going to be able to make every throw in the playbook. Where do you come down on those quarterbacks? Do you see either of them as options for the Dolphins? Yeah, I agree with you, especially on Jones. So Jones charts across the board pretty poorly. Some of that is his supporting cast, but I also do take into consideration drops. So if if there's a good drop, it's going to be accurate. But he's still below average across the board. I agree with you. There's just there's too many throws that he's leaving short. There's too much air underneath the ball. Uh, There's too many wobblers that he has, and he doesn't have a way to really overcome it. Greer actually charts amazingly. He's second strongest in the class behind Haskins. Um, maybe not overall, but just in terms of his total accuracy. And so looking at him, though, I agree with you. I just think I see Case Keenum with him. I see a guy coming out of a scheme with great receivers, tremendous receivers who are able to adjust to the ball mid-flight, very much like a Johnny Manziel type of offense. We're just going to throw it up, put it in the vicinity, and technically in what I do, that's an accurate ball. It's not something that I would put in my notes as a good throw, but statistically it's going to look as a good throw. So I think Greer is like that third or fourth round guy. You bring him in as a high-end backup, a character type of guy. He's an older prospect too. He's already 24. He's going to be 25. Uh, So the upside is not there. It's not like he's going to get better of an arm. Jones to me is just a don't draft. I I really wouldn't, man, until day three. And he's not going to last till day three. So for me, that's a don't touch him. Um, he's maybe what's the best case there? Andy Dalton. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not drafting Andy Dalton. Dolphins fans know, you know, at least Ryan Tannehill had the athletic upside to be better. Now maybe he didn't reach it, but at least I could have sold you on Ryan Tannehill. I can't sell you on Daniel Jones because there's nothing there for him to overcome uh, some of his limitations with. 100% in agreement there across the board. Let's go ahead and jump into the next tier of quarterbacks and maybe make it even more relatable to the Dolphins because you have like the Tyree Jacksons, the Brett Rippins. Uh, whoever else I'm forgetting, Easton Stick, which of these guys is the best day three option for the Dolphins? Because in my opinion, Ian, the Dolphins, unless they recoup a bunch of more second and third round picks, I think they might just pass the buck entirely on this class. Which guy might they take a project flyer on on day three? Yeah, I mean, as much as I love Tyree Jackson, I love his physical ability and profile and his potential upside. He charted terribly. He's a deep ball thrower. I don't think that's what the Dolphins want to do uh, with their offense. I think they're going to want to keep things on schedule and move the ball and, and be a little bit more visceral. 
I don't know that Jackson's that guy. So for me, um, Stick is interesting, but Brett Rippian would really be my guy. I think if I'm going to take a day three quarterback, that's the guy I would want to invest in. He's a good athlete. He's an experienced starter. Uh, good accuracy. He's not a great deeper thrower, but I think that you can sort of massage that a little bit and you can scheme those opportunities open, especially with the receivers that the Dolphins have. Uh, I think that if you build it around his strengths, which is going to be a little bit more in the run game, get, getting the ball out quickly, trusting his experience, he has those positive traits. The upside, I don't think is there. I don't think that you're going to be finding a long-term starter there, but maybe you can find something that's solid for a little bit and maybe can get you through the year if Ryan Fitzpatrick you know, doesn't end up working out. At least you can watch you know, watchable football, somewhat enjoyable <laughs> football, and keep you engaged in the games, and he can keep you competitive, even if you're not necessarily finding a franchise guy. Yeah, he was fun to watch in the Midwest Conference, or the Mountain West Conference, rather, just because Alexander Madison was a, you mentioned the running game, was such a strong support, and he could throw the ball in some inclement weather out here in Boise or Wyoming, whatever it was. I found him fun to watch for those same reasons, and the high-level processing was a big thing I liked about his game, too. So, again, agreeance across the board, and you mentioned the fact that they might have some boring football, and if Ryan Fitzpatrick goes down... You're darn right we're going to have some boring football because it's going to be Jake Rudolph and Luke Falk, two guys that, for my money, don't have NFL-caliber talent. But let's go ahead and talk about where the Dolphins are in that standpoint because there's this idea of tanking, which seems to be perpetuated by the beat writers. I don't see it that way. I've written a lot. I don't know if you've seen it, Ian, about how they're just basically positioning themselves to try to win in 2020 by pushing assets further back. Where do you come in on the rebuild slash tank on Brian Flores and Chris Greer and the job everyone's done so far about a month into things here? Yeah, I agree. I don't know that I would call this a tank. I, I look at this as saying we need to get playing time to certain players in certain positions. And I think that the draft is going to give some clarity on that. Right. So they're in a good spot. They're in a good spot for an elite ish or maybe second tier type playmaker to fall to them. And then you don't have to worry. Like, you don't have to sit there and say, we have to take a defensive end. We have to take a guard or, you know, we have to take whatever. We can take the best player that's there. If Ed Oliver's there, it's a no-brainer decision. Just take the best player that's there, build the roster like that, try to get these stars or potential stars on this roster so that you can have the foundation to work forward with. And then you have playing time built in for these guys. And I think that's a big thing for this group is can they get them on the field early or at least as far as when the staff feels that they're ready uh, but you want to be able to get them in the position to succeed. You don't want them to not see the field this year because you took a guy that you addressed at need. So I think you're right. I think this is more of a team that needed to cl- cleanse the cap, the cap situation, uh, really get some playing time for some of these guys who last year or the last two years haven't had a great opportunity uh, because of the veterans in front of them. Clear it out. Start fresh. See what you got. And you're already having the eye towards next year anyways without having all of the toxic cap situation or veterans out there that are trying to get their stats and trying to get you know their, their money and stuff like that. So I'm fine with it. I think this needed to happen a while ago. Um, they just finally did it, and it, it's going to be painful, right? Like if you're playing for the next year, I wouldn't call that a tank. I would just call it that's the first step in really addressing the foundational issues that they've had. Yeah, 100% agree there once again. But I just see all these ideas that they're trying to lose on purpose to go ahead and secure Tua Tonga-Vailoa. And I just don't see that being the case because it it's not likely to happen even if you try for it to happen. So why put all your eggs in that one basket? And like you mentioned, I actually have an article that published on Sunday night taking a look at this two-year plan as a whole. And one of my main premises of that article was talking about how there are positions on this football team that you can really kind of pass the buck on, like at quarterback, and maybe get some guys to elevate their game 
to a level that you didn't think they had before because they are young, because they have upside, and because they were recently drafted with somewhat high resources and just go that way. I mean, we're talking about guys like Charles Harris, for instance, or Jonathan Woodard on the defensive line if you want to go there. But for more on that, I want to come back on the other side of the podcast here and talk with Ian about the cornerbacks because if you guys don't know, Ian has charted cornerbacks even more than the quarterbacks he did recently in the 2017 season, I believe it was. The guy has a nose for defensive backs, so we'll come back and talk about that position group with the Dolphins here on the Lockdown Dolphins podcast part of the Lockdown Podcast Network. You can find us on Twitter at NFL Film Study. I'm at Blinkfield NFL, and the show is at Locked On Fins. Okay, picking things back up here on segment number three with Ian Wharton. You guys can find his work at NFL Film Study on Twitter, also on Bleacher Report, as well as Optimum Scouting. And I didn't get an opinion from you first, Ian, on Brian Flores in general. What do you think of him? Do you think that maybe for the first time in how long has it been since Dave Wanstead that a coach lasts more than four years? Yeah, I, I hope so. He sure seems like a good man. Uh, I'll say that first. Is he seems like a good dude. Um, he's definitely a guy that's easily, you know, you can root for. Uh, I do think that his impact on that that Patriots defense was actually visible, um, especially you look at the the Patriots tree and, and all the guys that have struggled from there. Um, I feel like if anyone's going to make it, he at least has the profile of someone who can do it. Uh, I, I hope he doesn't try to replicate everything Bill Belichick did. He, you know, he needs to use his own flavor on some of this stuff. Um, but I'm excited for him. I I think he might be a good coach. You know, we'll we'll find out over the next couple of years. But yeah, I. I if if I were to bet money on it, obviously I think that four years is a <laughs> that's the that's the line, right? Like yeah. that's a tough one. But um, I, I would say I would say yeah. I mean I, I just I believe in him as a person, and I think that that's the biggest thing, and especially for players, you know, I think schematically you can you can make do with some things. You don't have to be the most creative guy, but you know, can you get your players to actually develop and, and buy in? And, and I think he has a little bit of a history of that. It's an interesting time right now, given the NCAA tournament going on and it's the weekends we record this podcast. And so going back to like Tom Izzo having that whole issue with trying to discipline a player or hold him accountable. I think that a big part of that is just the players and the captains on the team, even having a level of respect for your coach and the, just the willingness to, to buy into what he's doing. I think we'll see that with Brian Flores, like you said, though, it's early to tell. We'll see what happens, but there's some hope in that way in the future. Let's go ahead and change gears here, Ian, and talk about the defensive backs because this is a position group that you mentioned as far as getting some of these younger guys more playing time and a reason that I am advocating going out and drafting two safeties to replace Rashad Jones and TJ McDonald because three safeties in this defense are going to play 60% or more of the snaps. And so I'm advocating going out and drafting safeties and maybe you pay Xavier Howard and you have Bobby McCain there in the slot, but maybe you allow that second position just to stay open this year because Eric Rowe has some upside, even though he's always hurt. And you've got four guys on my, in my book that could elevate their game and maybe take that role on. So I want to get your thoughts on Eric Rowe, a rebound for Bobby McCain, and where do you come in on Cordray, Tankersley, Torrey McTire, Jalen Davis, and Cornell Armstrong? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm completely with you here. I, I think that's the right move, especially because safeties are cheap. Safeties are like the one position in the NFL for some reason um, they do not pay a premium for unless if you're at like the very top of the market or you know they're paying you for other reasons like leadership and stuff like that. So I think you can add quality safeties to this roster, get cheaper at the position, be a little bit more versatile. And then I, I actually love the idea. This is exactly the year that I'm, I'm talking about. 
Find that long-term starter in-house if you can. Give them every opportunity to. Maybe you're adding one late in the draft, almost like Cornell Armstrong. Um, I really want to see how Cordrea Tankersley does. I know he's coming off a major injury, uh, but he was so good as a rookie. And I think that what Flores is going to do, he's going to make things make sense for players. And Eric Rowe is a good example of this. When Rowe played in 2017, he was a solid average to maybe a little bit better, but he was definitely an average type of corner. Well, you would take that as the number two corner. Sure. You're fine with that as a number two corner. You don't need a star necessarily when you sign him on a one-year deal. Um, so he's, his ability to match zone and man and do pattern match coverage, uh, that's going to be the key is, is can he get these guys mentally as stable and consistent as the Patriots have their cornerbacks? Because if you can, that's going to be more important than the raw talent level. And that's where it comes in with guys like, McTire, especially with Tankersley, because Tankersley has so much physical ability. So if you can get his mind even, which I think is where he struggled last year, is that his mind was all over the place, then you're looking at a, a high-end player. Same with Armstrong. The physical abilities are there. Can you get his mind up the snuff, become more of a, a savvy type of veteran that just has these explosive traits about him? Um, so I'm with you. I think there's enough there. There's enough competition already in-house Obviously, they've got to stay healthy. That's going to be, you know, maybe you want to add somebody just for, for depth and as far as um, trying to keep, you know, enough good bodies in the building. But uh, absolutely. I mean, even Jalen Davis, we talked about him last, I think it was even in August when we talked about him. He showed enough in, in preseason to have some faith in him and, and want to get him more snaps. And he played well down the stretch, too, in that Jacksonville game. He had himself, I think it was 13 snaps. He had a sack, a forced fumble, and a PBU. So he was all over the field in that game. And going back to your idea on Cordrea Tankersley, you mentioned the fact that he was good in 2017, and then things just fell apart for him in 2018. And you can go back to the preseason tape and just watch all these communication issues well, that's not really exclusive to Cordray Tankersley because you look across the Dolphins secondary, there are countless times where guys are looking at each other with their hands, you know, pointing towards the heavens saying, where were you? I thought you had that guy. And so you wonder how much of that can be fixed through scheme as Brian Flores brings over the top or the, the highest amount of man coverage snaps in the secondary compared to what Matt Burke was doing with zone over and over again, or spot dropping Kiko Alonso into coverage. Whatever it might have been, I just didn't think it was the right scheme fit for this personnel. So you hope that gets that that gets better. And the one last thing I want to ask you here, Ian, Bobby McCain, he had an injury last year, but also played on the outside. He was not good in 2018. What do you think he can do to get back to the level he was in he was on in twenty seventeen? Yeah, I think the easiest thing is just to get him back where he's comfortable. Getting him in the slot, uh, allowing his quickness and his natural reaction ability. If you can get that, I think he's going to be just fine. Uh, it's a big move from the slot to outside. It's a big move from outside into the slot. There's just a lot of different responsibilities. The communication is differently. It's, it's set differently. Uh, the space that you have to account for is all different. The help coverage is all different. So, And even the caliber of athletes that you're playing is different. So I really think that they, they just stretched a little too far. And you mentioned that you know Burke's inability to um, kind of tailor this defense to, to the strengths of it. It just made more sense, I thought, to keep him inside and, and keep guys where they're good. Uh, even though you know, Minka Fitzpatrick did well in the slot, I just think that there's, you could have given clarity to these guys' roles uh, at an earlier time, and then it ended up being a hodgepodge and, and a lot of missed opportunities. So uh, I would move him back inside. I'm with you. you know, you've got a plethora of guys who can play outside now. 
let them battle it out, rely on Xavier to be your star, and then it should be easier because you can also allocate safety help to that number two corner. It's what the Patriots have done for years uh, and able to go cheap and you even go with rookies as their number two corner. Not to mention having Minka Fitzpatrick who can slide down on the slot or on the outside, match up with a tight end. Because in this defense, safeties are going to come down and they're going to cover man across the board almost universally when the receivers go out wide, four wide, whatever it might be. So he, again, he is Ian Wharton. He is at NFL Film Study on Twitter. You can find his work on Bleacher Report as well as Optimum Scouting. Ian, let's do this again, maybe post-draft, you say? Yeah, sounds good, man. All right, very good, and off he goes. Once again, Ian Wharton at NFL Film Study on Twitter. Always good to get his perspective on things. He knows this team inside and out, just as I do, but it's always good to get a different perspective, even though we pretty much agreed on everything we talked about, but that's neither here nor there again. But another big thanks to Ian Wharton for doing the podcast. And as for today's show, that is going to be our time. If you guys have a smart speaker or Bluetooth capability in your car, just tell it to play Locked On Dolphins podcast and pull it up right away. Also, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on the Himalaya podcast app. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Check out the other Locked On Sports family of podcasts for all your local and national coverage of your favorite teams. Follow me on Twitter at NFL. Follow the show at Locked On Fins. Check out LockedOnDolphins.com for the Daily Dolphins blog. You guys have a great rest of your night. We'll talk to you again tomorrow for another edition of the Locked On Dolphins podcast, your daily dose for Miami Dolphins football.